This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already subscribing to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, with voting finally underway in the 2024 presidential election, it seems a good moment to ask, how safe are our elections? Allegations of electoral skullduggery have been commonplace throughout American history. But in the last few election cycles, claims of fraud have grown louder and more insistent. In 2020, of course, Donald Trump claimed the election was stolen by his Democratic opponent. But he was far from the first losing candidate to make that claim. Hillary Clinton blamed her defeat in 2016 on Russian interference in social media and other platforms. And in 2004, John Kerry's supporters alleged malfeasance involving voting machines in the swing state of Ohio. In 2024, the stakes seem especially high. We can expect all kinds of claims of fraud from all sides. But how much trust can we actually place in our electoral processes? How secure are the voting machines that we use? What about disinformation and misinformation on the internet swaying voters? And of course, this pivotal year is starting as wars rage in the Middle East and Europe, and threats to the security of the US and its allies are growing in Asia and elsewhere. All this is escalating cyber attacks on federal, state and local government agencies, as well, of course, as on American businesses. Well, to discuss all this and the state of our broader cybersecurity, I'm joined by someone who's familiar with all these challenges and the wider technological threats to our democracy. Matthew Prince is the co-founder and CEO of Cloudflare, a software firm that seeks to improve internet security for companies, governments and individuals. He co-founded the company in 2009, and it's grown in that period so that last year it recorded revenues of more than a billion dollars. And as of this week, it has a market capitalization, $26 billion. I sat down with him this week on the fringes of the World Economic Forum in Davos, and we discussed election security, as well as the more general state of our cybersecurity at a time of these heightened geopolitical tensions. Matthew Prince, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Jerry, thanks for having me. So you are a company that deals heavily in cybersecurity, other technological applications too. But I think, you know, what I'd like you to start off by doing for my listeners is tell us a bit about the company, how you founded it, what it does, what your main lines of business are, and, and then we can get into discussing some of those particular fields. Yeah, absolutely. So Cloudflare's mission is to help build a better internet. And we mean that literally. So today we operate one of the world's largest networks with data centers all around the world. Between 20 and 25% of the web sits behind our network. And what we do for those customers is we make sure that their experience on their website is fast, that it's reliable, that it's secure, that it's efficient, and that it's private. And security is a really big piece of that. Today, more than half of our revenue comes from security products. And so we're at the front lines of making sure that 
hackers stay away and that you can have a trusted and reliable experience, whatever you're doing online. I want to get into all of that and to talk to you generally about trends in the industry and trends in the economy too. But I have to start off asking you, you had one of those unfortunate incidents last week where the company went viral over a video that was posted by an employee who was being fired. For those who aren't familiar with it, I'm sure if you haven't seen it, it's very easy to see. This employee recorded herself having a conversation with two HR officials from Cloudflare, letting her go. And I think irrespective of the what we can talk about the video itself, and of course we won't talk about the specific case. You responded to that and you said it was painful to watch and it was a difficult moment for the company, understandably. Again, the main point of criticism that people had about that, and indeed that the employer herself had, was that she'd only been there with you a few months. She was fired. She said no bad performance reviews. She was given no indication that she wasn't thriving, wasn't doing okay. And then she was just suddenly let go and told, I'm not really given a good explanation for it. Again, without getting into this individual details, which I know you won't be able to do anyway, is that something that you hear at other companies too, that there is insufficient communication with employees about their performance? What's your reaction to that? Are there lessons from that that you take on board? Yeah, I think the first thing is that anytime that you have to let an employee go, that's a hard and painful conversation. And it's hard and painful even when done perfectly. And in this particular case, and again, don't want to go into the specifics, but unfortunately the manager had an issue in personal life and wasn't able to be on that conversation. And so that was an unfortunate situation in this case. What I will say is that we try to be very transparent with employees and everyone on our sales team has a real-time dashboard where they can see how they're doing, how they're doing versus what their expectations are and if they fall behind. I think more generally, I think not only us, but as an entire industry, COVID had one of these really weird kind of effects that was for a period of about two and a half years, we really didn't let anyone go. And we didn't think of Cloudflare as much as a high-performance team. We thought of it much more as almost a family. I think that was a very human thing to do as we were all going through a global pandemic, but that's not the long-term state. We have to be a high-performance team. We don't actually want to be a family. The reason why families make such good melodrama is that they're super rigid where humans are incredibly flexible. And we actually want new employees who perform extremely well to be able to be some of the leaders in our organization going forward. And the counter of that is that if you're not performing well, um, we're going to let you go. And so that, I think, is something that a lot of people are readjusting to, especially people who are newer in their careers. But I think it's important that we get back to being a high-performance team, and that's going to be rewarding those people who perform really well and, unfortunately, letting go of those people who don't. The other thing that I think that struck me and maybe struck other people about the whole episode, as you say, you mentioned the pandemic, we've all got used to working from home and this hybrid working and all that kind of stuff. And it was a reminder that there are some things that are better done human to human in person. I know many companies obviously do this now of necessity, I have to have those difficult conversations with employees remotely. But broadly speaking, your experience of this, and again, you're a company that has a lot of remote working, how is that working generally? And in terms of the human needs that we have of indirect interpersonal communication, especially in circumstances like that, does it make you rethink the whole business of remote working? Or do you think that is a reality that's here to stay? You know, I think that we were very much a work from office culture before the pandemic. And I was very nervous about shifting to remote work. You know, there's definitely things that are worse about remote work, but there are a lot of things that are significantly better. And so we've been able to attract really great people from a lot more places. We are inherently a global company. We've got customers in literally every country on earth. And so we have to be in those places where customers are. And if you look at sales in particular, sales has always had some aspect of a remoteness to that work. And so I think that we've learned a new skill in terms of being that. I think that it's still important for us to get together 
from time to time. And that's something that we're prioritizing. But I think that on balance, we think that the world has shifted and that remote work is here to stay and that that's something that we're committed to and we're not walking back in any way. And as you know, some CEOs, some companies are very concerned about this and report significant declines in productivity as a result of remote working with inevitable distractions that people have at home or wherever else they may be. Is that not your experience? You're very comfortable with the productivity performance that you've seen with the remote working you have. Yeah, I mean, it's been incredibly productive. I think that teams have actually gelled and gotten stronger across that. I think we've seen an incredible inflow of applicants. So to give you just some sense, in 2022, we had about 400,000 people apply to work for Cloudflare. We hired about a little over 1,000 of those people. In 2023, we had 1.2 million people, so three times as many people. For a similar number of... Uh, for hiring about yeah, the yeah, same yeah. same number of people. And so we're seeing an incredible flow, great talent, the ability to let people have more flexibility in where they work and when they work, I think is incredibly important. What I think we have to get much more prescriptive around, though, is how people work. And so I think in the past, we were much more flexible about how people work, but we sort of said you have to work at these particular times and in these particular places. I think what we're adapting to is saying we want to give people a lot more flexibility in when and where they work, but we need to be much more prescriptive in how they work. For example, when somebody onboards at Cloudflare, there's a specific set of tasks that we have them do around trainings, around making sure that they meet those milestones. And what we found is if people do those things, then they're incredibly high performers. If people don't do those things, then that's a really good predictor that they're not not going to be as high a performer. And so again, I think that that's the sort of thing where we're trying to make sure that we bring such an incredibly talented group of people together. We're still hiring at a, a just a torrid pace. And for the most part, again, that has shown that that's a way to cause people to be happier in their work, to cause people to be more productive in their work. And again, it, we've actually accelerated our productivity and the rate that we've been able to deliver new products, new features on board, new customers, and, and really live up to our mission of helping build a better internet. I want to come back and talk about some of those broader trends in employment and productivity for the economy as a whole, because you're in a significant contributor to the economy, and also you have many clients, and I want to get your sense of where we're going. But let's get on to your sort of core business, as you laid it out at the beginning, you know, building a better internet. And in particular, this issue of cybersecurity, which is obviously remains top of mind for so many businesses and indeed individuals. You just released a report in January, a regular report that tracks the number of cyber attacks. And there are some astonishing numbers in there. Just give us a sense of just, you know, how sustained, how important, how persistent this cyber threat is to companies like your clients? Well, I think that it's always been a challenge ever since people have gotten online and the world isn't getting easier. I think that if you had asked me a year ago at Davos what would have been the theme of 22 or 2023, I would have predicted that there would have been a much larger number of attacks in sort of 2022 in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That turned out not to have been the case. In fact, we did not see, 2022 was actually a very quiet year on the cyber front relatively. What was interesting is actually the big increase in attacks came in the back half of 2023, mm -hmm. and especially after the Hamas attack on Israel. And it seems like what we're seeing now is the attacks that we expected out of Russia really didn't materialize before, but now that there is a new proxy in that front, we're seeing a lot more attacks that are coming out of what look like Syria, what look like Iran, but it seemed to have Russian fingerprints behind them. That's fascinating. So what kind of attacks are we talking about? Are they against 
government installations? Are they against companies? What are you thinking about? If you just think about countries like Russia, countries like Iran, countries like North Korea today, they really are looking almost just cause chaos and that they want to sort of dislocate what the established order is. And so we're seeing almost indiscriminate attacks across many different industries that are looking to erode the trust in traditional Western institutions. So against financial institutions, against healthcare workers, against education, schools, utilities, broad sets of attacks that are looking for any vulnerability that undercut what is that sort of established kind of trust in the overall system. And I I think as we go into 2024 and It is an election year in the United States, but it's an election year for almost half of the global population. We're seeing also a significant number of attacks targeting what are those sort of key election infrastructure points. And that's one of the places that we're really focused on in 2024, making sure that it's secure. Just quickly back to this, particularly in the context you said in the back half of 2023, we saw attacks seem to be somehow related to Israel, Hamas. So again, are we seeing, and you say maybe with Russian fingerprints behind them, whether it's from Syria or Iran or elsewhere, are we seeing attacks on Israel? Is it attacks on Palestinian, maybe false flag kind of attack? I mean, what's your sense of what's explaining this surge in attacks? Well, I think that any time that you've got a kinetic war going on, you're also going to have a cyber war that's going on under the surface. And so there are attacks both targeting Israeli institutions, but there are also attacks that are targeting Palestinian institutions. And we've seen a number of times over the course of the last several months where the entire Palestinian internet has been shut down, either due to cyber attacks or other um, kinetic attacks that are going on. And so there's often a proxy for what is happening in the physical world, which is what is also happening in the cyber world. I think beyond that, though, you're seeing that being used as an excuse to attack what are sort of the traditional Western allies of Ukraine. And so where I would have expected that to really take off in sort of 2022 and early 2023, I think that Russia being able to, it seems, launch attacks that target various Western allies, but not be directly blamed for those attacks, making it look like it's coming from somewhere else, has actually given them the cover to be able to use that. The reason that they would want to do that is they're actually very significantly vulnerable to cyber attacks themselves. And so if they attack directly and their fingerprints were all over it, they might incur a Western response that, again, they are they have significant vulnerability within their own country too. And not specifically on these attacks related to Russia we're talking about, but the overall scale of the attacks that, that you are dealing with, that you see alone, we're talking tens of billions a day. That's right. Give us a sense of the scale and also maybe how that's grown over the last few years. Yeah, I think that a significant uptick, especially in the back half of 2023, and then individual attacks Some are very sophisticated, but some are actually just simple brute force. And so to give you some sense, a series of attacks that have been attributed to a hacker group out of Syria, although again, you can't always trust where that looks like. And and my hunch is that that's probably much more related to either Russia or Iran behind the scenes. But a series of attacks that have come out of a Syrian affiliated group have reached a scale where they're sending as much traffic targeting a single victim as there is almost across the entire internet on a given moment in time, a given day or a given hour, they can target that much traffic. And so if you imagine someone like the Wall Street Journal, obviously has significant resources, but if all of a sudden the entire internet, all of its traffic was coming just to WSJ.com, that is very difficult for anyone but an organization like Cloudflare to be able to actually sustain and actually stay online. And so we, along with AWS and Google earlier this year published this new series of attacks that are being launched again by this group. 
And the scale is just frightening in terms of the size that they're creating. And very few organizations on their own would be able to stand up to them. There presumably are a range of sophistication, right? There's a hacker sitting in his basement in his pajamas, you know, trying to shut down the DOD or something. And then there's the PLA, the Russian FSB, doing what it's doing. What's the balance here? Are we mostly talking the smaller, opportunistic, maybe not as sophisticated attempts? Or are we talking some of these really high level? You know, I, I think that oftentimes the most sophisticated actors are trying to gain access, and then they often will just go very quiet. Uh, it's much harder to see what's going on. That is going to be much more likely someone who's not just trying to cause chaos, but who's maybe trying to steal intellectual property, who's trying to establish a foothold ahead of some significant threat in the future. And, and I think that that is still the minority of what we see, but it's some of the highest risk that we see that's out there. And again, that can come from you know, much more sophisticated actors. If you look at a lot of what's coming out of Russia and Iran, again, it's much more just a let's cause as much chaos as quickly as possible. Let's knock offline various institutions. Let's discredit things that we might not like or that might not be aligned with what our sort of view of the natural or of the global world order that we would like it to be. That's going to be the much more high volume, much more frequent attacks. But both of those things are on the rise right now. And again, you can sometimes tell who the actor is behind it based a little bit on what they're targeting and again, how noisy they're being about it. The Russians tend to be very, very noisy about the attacks that they're launching. The kid in the basement would probably tend to be kind of noisy about the attack that they're launching. Whereas someone who is much more sophisticated, like the PLA in China, might be much more quiet and subtle, looking for those vulnerabilities to establish a foothold, to steal intellectual property, but are, again, much quieter about what they're doing. Again, you talk about stealing intellectual property. Are these attacks mostly... Again, you say just trying to cause chaos is it in the denial of service. I think it's called essentially just trying to shut things down, which we do occasionally see succeed. How much of it is stealing of intellectual property? How much of it is more, if you like, sort of sophisticated, more complex than simply just trying to just create mayhem? I mean, it's hard to say because, again, some of the most sophisticated attacks are the least likely for us to be aware of or to notice. So saying it's you know 90% one and 10% the other, I think it's much easier and you'll get a lot more publicity around the things that are just trying to shut some service down. But we in our business have to worry about both of those things. And we work to protect our clients against both of those things. And I think across the board, while sort of 2022 and early 2023 was much quieter than I would have anticipated, the back half of 2023 has been very, very active across just about every type of cybersecurity threat that you can see. And just how vulnerable are we? You know about these extraordinary numbers because presumably your software, as you say, along with other companies, is being used to shield companies, institutions, websites from these attacks. So you know about those. But again, as you say, some manage to get through. We hear about, you know, denial of service or theft of property, what kind of stuff. How vulnerable is our cyber infrastructure and how much success are you having? But how much is there out there where you're not able to stop it? Yeah, I think there's sort of a good news, bad news story here. I think the good news is that if you follow the best security practices, you actually can be very secure online. And so we see on a daily basis, some of the most sophisticated threat actors targeting us and our clients, and we're able to repel those using really basic and fundamental good security practices that are in place, using things like zero trust security architectures, making sure that every single service requires authentication, making sure that's secure. But if you do that correctly, and I think the company that really gets the credit for inventing this new sort of paradigm is, is really Google. And Google 
faced such significant security threats themselves that they said, we have to move away from the old, you're trusted if you're in the office, you're not trusted if you're not in the office. You know, if you're behind the firewall, then you can go anywhere. If you're not behind the firewall, you can't go anywhere. They said that that approach, there's no way that you can be secure over time. And the analogy that I would use is, you know, once upon a time when we built boats, we would build a boat with a big boat and in order to keep it secure, we would make the hull as thick as possible. But the problem is there's always an iceberg out there. There's always something that could puncture that hole. And once the hole was punctured, the entire boat flooded and the boat sank. The solution to that was building bulkheads within the boat to acknowledge that there are going to be holes that happen somewhere in your boat, but if that happens, it shouldn't be catastrophic. And I think that that's the change in how security is being done today. And the companies that embrace that, that go down that path, can be much more secure. And someone like Google, uh, someone like Cloudflare, that we've followed that, we know that there's always going to be an employee that falls for a phishing scam or the device that gets compromised, but the bulkheads keep that from being a catastrophic problem across the entire organization. The problem is that most companies today are still building their security architecture like those old boats. And if they have one vulnerability, if they have one employee that falls for a, a phishing scam, if they have you know one firewall that gets compromised, that can take the entire organization down. And so I think that the best companies are following again this new approach to security. And if they do that, then they're actually able to secure their systems much better and can stay ahead of most of the attacks that are out there. We're going to take a short break there. When we come back, I'll have more with Matthew Prince, CEO of Cloudflare, talking about how secure is the U.S. electoral process. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Matthew Prince, CEO of Cloudflare, and we're talking about cybersecurity, and in particular about the threats there might be to the security of U.S. election processes. All right, so as you said, we're in election year around the world. Let's talk about the U.S. in particular. There have been all kinds of outlandish claims made about election interference. When we're familiar with, you know, obvious election interference, which is interference in, if you like, in the campaign, misinformation, as people like to call it, various other things like that. But let's talk about the actual voting process itself. And you touched on this a little bit. Again, much of the U.S. voting infrastructure, electoral infrastructure, is one way or another, built on machines and operating software and all of that. And again, they're, you know, famously in 2020, but also in other elections. I can recall going back to 2004, there were claims made about interference with voting software and voting machines. But as you look at it, and again, I don't know if you are directly involved with any states or jurisdictions in terms of protecting their election software. How secure, actually, just on a most basic level, is that technology? Yeah, so I think it's first good to sort of take a step back and think about how the U.S. has designed their elections and what that is good at protecting from and what that is has a much harder time protecting from. So the first thing is, as the U.S. was coming into being, the founding fathers were worried about was a corrupt central authority 
that would basically change the tally of the votes. And so in order to protect against that, what they did was they said every single county in every single state can run their elections however they want. And there's a real genius in that. It means there is no central corruptible authority. And so while it is absolutely inevitable that there will be some problem in one county and one part and maybe bad software could be just a corrupt official could be any number of things to corrupt the entire election across the entire nation is really challenging because there's an enormous amount of diversity and so i think it's tempting to focus on things like software but it turns out that almost every county uses different versions of software different methods of voting everyone does it different and so There are stories that you can tell around those things, but they're actually really tough to corrupt the election by corrupting, you know, a piece of software or corrupting an individual officiating election. What I think that the founding fathers and what that design didn't take into account is sort of the problems of the 2010s, 2020s that we're seeing today, which is actually a very different problem, which is you've got all these small local election officials. And I've talk to those election officials in blue states and red states and purple states and across the board. This is an incredibly thankless job. And the people who do it are, by and large, just incredible patriots from everything that I've been able to see. And yet they're on their own versus at times the FSB or the PLA or, you know, really sophisticated threat actors. And what's challenging is if the FSB can compromise one county then that corrupts the trust in the entire institution. And so that's what we saw in 2016. 2016 or 2020? Well, 2016, I think that we saw real election interference from foreign officials. Now, in the actual voting machines, in the actual, not, again, not in the campaign. Not the voting machine. I mean, I think that- You're talking about the Facebook stuff. And all the Facebook stuff and all those things. And I think when we saw that, we said, like, we couldn't have built Cloudflare without a stable functioning government that sits underneath us. And, and we are lucky to have had that in the United States. And so we thought it was important for us to give back. And so we launched something that we call the Athenian Project, which is to say, regardless of who you are, if you're administ- helping administer an election anywhere in the U.S., we'll provide our services at absolutely no cost to help you protect that. And what I think was important was in 2020, more than half of U.S. states took us up on helping protect them. And again, we don't touch the individual voting machines, but we touch all of the other things that help do it. So for instance, if there's a website that tells you, here's where your polling place is, here's where you go to vote, we help make sure that that's secure, that it can't be corrupted. They can't have a denial of service that takes offline. If there's an API where an election official submits their results back to the Associated Press or to whoever the centralized authority that reports on the elections are, we help protect that as well. And I think there have been other companies that have stepped up and said, Elections are important enough that we should provide our services at no cost. So Microsoft, Google, others have said, we're going to protect them. And again, different counties are doing things in different ways. And what I hope that will do is give these counties the resources they need to stand up to the FSB and PLA and and these big, sophisticated attackers that are outside, but still allow them to each do things their own way so that you actually don't have to worry about, is there one corrupt official or is there one corrupt code base that's out there? And if if you look back, I'm really proud of the fact that in 2020, cybersecurity wasn't a big issue. And I'm hopeful that in 2024, we and a number of others can help make sure that that isn't a big piece of what influences the election. Just going to forward. be absolutely clear on that, because this is really interesting and obviously really important stuff. And as you say, it is a great strength of the US system that it evolved and disaggregated. But it is also the case, and you've, you've kind of hinted at this, that given close election 
elections, and given that there are a limited number of swing states where the votes actually, in the end, determine and can be determined by a relatively small number of votes, you could probably identify 10 or 15 counties or something like that in the whole of the United States, where if you could interfere with the process there, interfere with those machines, you could swing the election one way or the other. Now, there were some outlandish claims made in 2020, now let's move on 2020, by the Trump campaign in particular, involving dead Venezuelan dictators and all of that kind of stuff. But aside from the specifics of those claims and the plausibility of them or otherwise, can we be confident that a foreign actor, especially one with very sophisticated resources like the FSB or the PLA, actually, can we be really confident that they couldn't somehow manipulate the software in voting machines or in tabulations or all of the things that go on in the process and the count of an election that could actually give us a false result? I mean, what's the level of confidence we can have about that? I, again, I think that the key here is that having different counties do things in different ways and a diversity of different approaches. And some people should use just paper ballots and some people should use electronic voting and some people should do everything else. That's what gives real strength here. And then making sure that you can't corrupt any of the processes of how people figure out where they vote, when they vote, how results are reported back. And again, I think we should be one of the people that helps with that. But it's great that there are other companies that are stepping up and saying elections are important enough that we need to make sure that there is never a financial reason why counties can't have the resources to be able to stand up to even these very sophisticated threat actors. And just briefly, what about misinformation? Again, we just talked briefly about the Russian government's efforts in 2016 to manipulate social media and various other platforms to promote a particular candidate or whatever. That's going to be something, again, presumably. How much of that are you expect we'll see in 2024? Is that going to be a big factor? You know, I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is what are kind of problems that are above your pay grade. We're really good at cyber attacks. We're really good at infrastructure. We're not so good at content. You know, what I would turn back to is, you know, as I've sat with the leadership at News Corp, as I've sat with leadership at other media companies, I think this is actually a place where media needs to play a real role. And I think in these times where you're seeing increasingly technologies like AI that are able to produce things that look very real, I think the media, part of the role it should play is to be able to say, that's real and that's not real. And I think that's very much a topic that is much more in your wheelhouse than it is in my wheelhouse. We'll keep the infrastructure safe. We'll make sure that the pipes still work. But figuring out what content is information and disinformation, again, I think that's much more of a job for people in the media like yourself. That's very reassuring. So you can rely on us to tell the truth. Again, I think what you want is a rich set of media organizations that are helping out there say, you know, this is really what someone said. I was there. And we have to rebuild that trust. And, and again, I think that that is historically been a role for media. And I think that that's one that media needs to step up to, including starting to think about how they can be technology providers that understand, like being able to tell this is a synthetically generated image versus this isn't. That feels very much like a role that someone like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or, or Bloomberg or whoever it is should be playing. And again, I think that's a great role for the media and probably not a very good role for someone like us. Finally, look at the business climate that we're in. Again, you have a lot of clients in a lot of countries, but let's talk about the US in particular. You know, 2023, a year ago, many, many people thought 2023 was going to be a very challenging year. Interest rates that were rising had risen and were still rising. Uh, many people expected a recession. Now, growth turned out to be okay, not great, but better than I think most economists' expectations. Inflation, which had been surging, has come off still higher than the Fed would like and still higher than most people would like. As you look at 2024, and again, you talk to clients and you see the state of the kind of the business environment, 
Again, expectations seem to be for maybe sort of slightly weaker growth, continuing declines in inflation. What are your expectations for the year? I think that, um, again, first of all, there are a lot of people who are economists and, and I am not one, but you know, we do see traffic patterns in terms of internet use. We do see a significant percentage of the big companies in the world that use our services, and we can derive some things from that. What I'll say about it, 2023 was, I've never seen an IT market like this, where especially in March of 2023, IT buyers just froze up. I think driven by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and others, people just wouldn't make decisions. And we saw indications where Fortune 500 companies were saying that any purchase that was over $50,000 had to be approved by the CFO. That's obviously not scalable if you're running a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And I think we have gotten back to what I would say is a paranoid and a conservative approach in the IT spend space, but it is not the complete paralysis that we had back in March. And so I am still nervous about 2024. I think that if you think about things that could go wrong and you put that in one column and things that could go right, and you put that in a column. The column of things that could go wrong is a lot longer than the column of things that could go right. Briefly, what are the headlines of the column of things that could go wrong? Oh, the expansion of the war in Ukraine, the expansion of the war in the Middle East, um, inflation raising its head, especially around the rest of the world. I think usually you'd think of a presidential election as a point of sort of change. Whereas I think that if you look at what is likely to happen here, regardless of which candidate, the two frontrunner candidates from the Democrats and the Republicans are, are definitely not agents of change. They're sort of agents of the past inherently. They've both been president before. And so I think it's hard to imagine what is a significant sea change that's out there. And so I think we will continue to have 2024 as a year of grinding. I think for a company like us, where we're providing cybersecurity, sometimes the world getting more chaotic is good for us. But it, I think for the rest of the world, you know, I'm concerned. And I think we're being very prudent as we think about the future. And we're making sure that our clients can stay safe and reliable and secure no matter what they're doing online and, and staying there for them. Stay safe out there. Matthew Prince, thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Terry, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'll be back next week with another conversation with someone on one of the big topics that we're facing in the world at the moment. Thanks very much for joining us. In the meantime, have a great week.